everybody. Thanks for listening again. It's me, Matt Tinney. And Jennifer Earhart. Thank you guys for tuning in again to this episode. I think we're going to be listening to a didactic from the CIT Knowledge Network on Borderline Personality Disorders by Dr. Rosenbaum. So please stay tuned for that. I hope you guys enjoy it. Jen, do you want to go over the CIT Knowledge Network? Sure. What would you like me to how say do people, about it? How do people connect to it? Okay, great. So the CIT Knowledge Network, for folks who don't know about it, is a weekly meeting that we do um, Fridays here in Albuquerque. But you can join us from wherever you are. Um, That's the beauty of um, our model, which uses Zoom video conferencing. So you can um, join us. We meet at 930 Mountain Time every Friday. Um, And it's open to anyone involved in law enforcement or more broadly um, public safety. Um, We do case presentations every week, and we also have a didactic, um, usually from an outside presenter, hopefully. Um, So, for instance, this week we have a special uh, training from Dr. Dan Duhigg um, that we're doing on identifying drug-induced intoxication. Um, So it's a really cool topic, and um, next week I think we're doing one on homelessness, and the following week we have PTSD. So the topics are... Um, they vary every single week. Um, you can always get something useful from them. And again, you can join from Zoom, which you can download on a tablet, an iPhone, your computer. All you need is a camera. So uh, it's a great meeting. Matt's making faces. I'm not sure why. Maybe I'm, am I dragging on about this? Should I keep going? Um, so if you're interested, um, I'd like to give out my email address. Still hoping someone will email me out there if you're listening if you can hear us. Yeah, please email Jen. Let her know. <laughs> I'm still hoping. I will give my email address very slowly. J-E-A-R-H-E-A-R-T at C-A-B-Q dot gov. Email me and I will hook you up with our weekly meetings. That was definitely nice and very, very slow on that. So if you guys are listening to this, you're probably listening to this after Dan Duhigg's one. We're a little bit behind on these. So these are kind of coming out a bit late. Jen, I want to know, there was a, a recently something in the news about police collecting data on people with mental illnesses. Okay. Or mental health. Do you think this is important, or do you think it's like a violation of people's privacy? Well, what type of data? At first, my first reaction is, heck yeah, it's important. We need data on everything. Data is what gives us informed opinions and helps us um, come up with the best, practor, pra- bleh, best practice standards out there. Um, data is so crucial, I think, to law enforcement. So you know that, you know, who it is you're seeing out in the field, um, how people are responding. Um, I think you guys call them dispositions. Am I correct on that? Am I somewhere? Someone's disposition? Yeah. yeah. What is a disposition? <laughs> <It's how> someone's <laughs> behavior. <laughs> Their so, body language um, So, anywho, I, I would say my gut is, yeah, it's important. I don't know if the... You know, the counter argument to that is it's an an invasion of someone's privacy. privacy. So I'd have to say, you know, what kind of data it is, but I'm a huge data person. Support it. I think some of the stuff that people are arguing is mainly the use of body cameras. And this one actually was important. Mm. And so they're saying, you know, people are filming people in a time of like a mental health crisis. Oh, I see. Are you violating that person's rights or is it a little intrusive? Right. But I think it's, it's, uh, you know, I don't know where law enforcement should draw the line. People yeah. want us to be more transparent and film things. But Definitely. then I get also the point, like, you're filming someone in a 
intimate time with their mental health is kind of. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't do that in the hospital. Right. You know, and so it, it's raising a lot of questions, but it's it's like opposite of everything. It's people are mad that we don't film things in law enforcement, like we're hiding stuff, and then we mm-hmm. film things, and they're like, why are you guys filming things? Right. I, I like this topic. I think this could be a really cool um, podcast in the future. Have like a mini debate on the subject. I don't know who we could get, but... We have to get someone for and against it. Yeah. We'll have to find someone. Yeah, it's kind of hard because you are super pro-data. And everyone that we on know everything. is pretty much is very pro-data. <laughs> right. And uh, I see you, son. I think that they... I get if what people are concerned about. And, and you know, if, they, if you say that everything law enforcement records is just public... Right. And, you know, anyone can pull that. Yeah. And you could have, like, your family member who's at a, you know, is having a mental, a behavioral health crisis and is doing something inappropriate and then all of a sudden it's on YouTube. Yeah. And that can be embarrassing. That could affect jobs and everything like that. So if places, if states, I should say, not even organizations, because people will just sue organizations if they're withholding information, but states need to create some kind of guideline where these don't get released to the public. Mm-hmm. And people have to accept, I think. Yeah. I, I can see the point of recording stuff. You know, there's been negative interactions with law enforcement and people in mental health crisis. But so why not record it? But you shouldn't just release it to everybody. Yeah. I think that's where I am. You know, I'm kind of on the fence about it. Um, because, again, like I see like all this information is so valuable. And just like you're hitting on, you know, it's important to know what happens in these situations. But you also don't want to single someone out um, when they're in a mental health crisis. And you don't want that um, crisis to be um, on public display. Right. Um, so it's a very like tricky you know, thing. How do you work around this issue? Yeah, what's your take? Do you think it's good that police wear on-body cameras? Oh, like, well, heck yeah. Devices? Do you like that, honestly? <laughs> heck yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I like it as a civilian, um, which I think is, like, you know, the perspective I always bring to this. Is a civilian this? Is a civilian that? But at the end of the day, you know, that is my perspective. It's how yeah. I see things and my interactions with law enforcement. Um, yeah, I think the camera's important. I think it, it does seem like it could reduce... Um, situations that don't always end so well for um, either law enforcement or the individuals they're interacting with. Yeah, it I think seems it holds like, everyone accountable. Yeah, it seems like there's been some um, police departments that have had really great success with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, sort of causes people to, um, I don't know, just do better. Is that a <laughs> poor <laughs> phrase? But like, you know, do better now. Yeah, yeah, do better now. Um Anytime you have a camera on you, you're going to, like, I don't know. differently. Yeah. And at the same time, like, I want want the police officers I interact with to act the same no matter if a camera's on or off. Right. But I think it's important, too, that, you know, until that, you know, for me, until I feel like that happens, like, I I want that camera on. No, I I see what you're saying. I I think, actually, the department we work for was the first in the country to mandate on-body cameras. Hmm. And, and so it's been a challenge. And my whole concern is that police interactions is public record. Mm-hmm. And so if someone's wanting to look up a loved one or maybe they're going through a divorce or even look up celebrities, let's say, you can get the police report, which is just the facts for the most part. You don't get the how they were actually behaving. But now that people can have access to the cameras, I'm always worried, you know, that there's law enforcement's in a lot of intimate areas. There are yeah. people's homes, you know, they catch people and young ones 
doing things that shouldn't be in parks and whatnot. <laughs> and so this is all on camera now. And people have access to it. It's it's an interesting time with technology. Yeah. Oh, another podcast idea, technology and law enforcement. That would be a good one. Yeah. Jen looked at the phone. It's We're about to, to have go. to take off. Thank you guys for listening and enjoy this topic coming up, which is on borderline personality disorder. If you guys have any other topics you want us to talk about, send it to ask at gocit.org. Don't forget to check out the CIT Knowledge Network, and we'd love to hear back from you guys. Bye. Bye. We're going to hear from Niels as okay. he blows our mind with knowledge. <laughs> okay, so today we're going to talk about personality disorders with a bit of a focus on borderline personality. Um, and I wanted to actually start with a video, R-rated. Um, this cool is familiar or has seen uh, Fatal Attraction. You just raise your hand. Anybody actually seen Fatal Attraction? So about half the people? I lived it. So you lived it. <laughs> so for the, for the people who haven't seen it, it's, uh, who is it? Glenn Close and Michael Douglas are having a relationship. Uh, Glenn Close is a, uh, a seductress. She's, she has presumably borderline personality disorder, and she's having an affair with a married man. And he knows and he's told her this is sort of a dead end. It's just very intense and fun. And so this is um, this scene is after they have sex. <gasps> they make what? love. Excuse me. They make love. It's coitus. 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 <laughs> and uh, the rest is pretty self-explanatory. And then there are also other scenes further along in the movie. So this is. This is earlier in the movie, and then it moves along. And then we could discuss it and relate it back to personality disorders. Let's hope this works. You better. I can't see through your headlights. Oh, shit. What are you doing? I gotta go. I thought you said she wasn't coming back till tomorrow. She's not. I got things to do, I guess. Yeah, I don't think I like this. Like what? The way you run away after every time we make love. Well, Alex, what difference does it make whether I leave now or in the morning? The fact is, I gotta go. Well, you're not gonna leave now. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Please stop. Hey, come on. Hey, Alex, come on. Is the screen frozen for all of you? Yeah, it looks like it's good. All right. Well, just back it up just a little bit. It looks like it got unfrozen. Oh, is this frozen? Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's be reasonable. Be reasonable. <laughs> what? what? Thank you. Goodbye. Don't call me. I'll call you. Look, you knew about me, all right? I didn't hide anything. I thought it was understood. What was understood? The opportunity was there and we took it. Come on now, we're, uh, we are adults, aren't what we? What's that supposed to mean? I thought we'd have a good time. No, you didn't. You thought you'd have a good time. You didn't stop for a second to think about me. That's crazy. You knew the rules, Alex. What rules? Look, Alex. I like you. And if I wasn't with somebody else, then maybe I'd be with you. But I am. Please don't justify yourself as pathetic. 
You'd tell me to fuck off, I'd have more respect for you. All right, then fuck off. And you get out! Okay, so uh, I think that's, uh, you know, it's very dramatized, but this is, uh, people with borderline are very unstable, and everything in their life is kind of unstable. And from anecdotal evidence, and Matt can back me up on this, cops have a tendency to date people with borderline personality <laughs> disorder. <laughs> Matt, do you agree? No, that is very true. Uh, only once, and then they learn their lesson. <laughs> they see cops as saviors. They are often very seductive. They can be very attractive. They can make great first impression. They can um, sort of build you up and build up your self-esteem and play into people's egos. Uh, and so one of the things that they do is they overvalue people and then they suddenly will turn on them so and the shifts can happen very rapidly the best word to remember about borderline personality disorder is actually instability or being unstable everything about them is unstable their sense of who they are can be very unstable so they might try one religion one day and another one the next week and red hair and then shaved hair um and so they, they everything about them is unstable even in extreme cases, their sense of reality can start getting um, messed up. So they can have what are called parapsychotic or near psychotic symptoms where they become very paranoid, um, sus suspicious, hyper jealous. Um, and so even in, we've ha had cases where people are so borderline that we thought they were schizophrenic and we followed them with that. And then they went to the jail and they had very good diagnostic and longitudinal um, information, and it turned out they were more borderline than anything. But generally, they're very different. Borderline and, and schizophrenia are generally very different. The other one that gets uh, mixed up with borderline is uh, bipolar, and they can coexist. But uh, people with borderline often want to be bipolar. 
because bipolar is a much more acceptable illness for whatever reason. And borderline has a huge stigma around it. Uh, people, clinicians kind of dread seeing borderline patients. Um, they often are, are treated differently. And so, because they're, they're very frustrated, they're hard to treat. Um, they don't do great inpatient. So, because they act out. So if you have somebody with borderline personality disorder, sometimes the worst thing you can do is admit them to the hospital because that's their ticket to act out. Okay, where better to be crazy than inside the hospital? And then they take all the attention away from the patients that can generally benefit from the hospital, people with schizophrenia, people with uh, bipolar, sort of classic bipolar, who can really get better in the hospital. The clinical team ends up spending all their time on someone with borderline, and it's everybody else suffers. And so, like in Glenn Close having that suicide attempt, uh, it wasn't really a suicide attempt. And this is a sort of a classic bipolar thing, that, and it's in the diagnosis borderline. sort of. What, what did I say? Bipolar. Oh, excuse me. This is a classic uh, borderline uh, behavior, sort of the self mutilation. It's right there in the diagnosis. So um, they. They will act out. If someone truly wants to kill themselves, they're not going to do it in front of somebody. They're not going to call up their brother and say, or boyfriend or girlfriend and say, I'm going to kill myself and it's all your fault and I'm taking pills right now. Don't call for help. And then they'll hang up. That's a very classic borderline. So what happens is cops will often pick up people who just had a suicide attempt. They'll be brought to the hospital, and then a day later, they'll be right back out. And it can be very frustrating to police officers. But from the other side, being an admitting doctor there, you, you would, and hopefully Dan can back me up on this, if someone has really bad borderline and they had sort of a parapsychotic, I mean, para, like a, not a true suicide attempt, you may not admit them. And so because it's one of the criteria for admissions is a reasonable expectation that the person's going to get better. And you can't really say that with a personality disorder They in one hospitalization. It takes a long uh, road for people to get better with borderline. And they do get better, uh, which is nice. There's, a, there's another one of those stigmas that this is how they are and they never get better. And that's actually not true. Most of them get better, especially with treatment. Um, it may take 10 years, it's not like a two-week hospitalization with someone who's manic or psychotic where they can get significantly better. So admitting to the hospital is not always productive. Other things about um, personality disorders in general and uh, borderline in particular is impulsivity is a very uh, important factor in, in um, borderline. So Impulsivity and is a very big predictor for violence. Um, and unfortunately, people with borderline personality disorder do have higher rates of violence. It's usually, like I'm sure as cops, you see this all the time. Let's say they're two best friends or a boyfriend and girlfriend, and you're on scene, and, and they're yelling at each other, and the girl's like, I hate you, you stupid bitch, and she'll run and grab them and hit them. That's sort of the very typical borderline violence. It's impulsive, and it's usually against people they know, and then a week later, they'll be besties again. You know, it's, uh, it, they, as I said, it's everything's unstable. So they, they love you, and then they hate you, and then they love you, and they hate you again. The other thing that police officers and everybody needs to be careful with borderline personality disorders is they'll suck up your time. So um, 
you, you think, oh, this is a nice lady, she's attractive, she needs help, and you'll go that extra mile for her, and before you know it, you're spending all your time, you know, dealing with her or him. It, it, both men and women can be diagnosed with this. And the only anecdote, antidote for that is to, to really work together as a team because the other thing that they're really excellent at doing is splitting teams up. So if you have a team, one person on the team is going to say, oh, this person's great and I'm going to do everything I can to help them. And the other person on the team might say, no, this is a big waste of time. Or, you know, they'll start uh, accusing each other of things. You know, you did this and why didn't you go that, why didn't you do this for her? That's all she really wanted. And she'll, it's called splitting. They'll split a team into into pieces. And so that's a very dangerous situation. And the way to combat that is to all get on the same page. We had another patient with very uh, patient, uh, somebody we were following in CIU who has bad personality disorder. Um, and she glommed on to, I think it was Javi, and she would constantly call him, always well, wanting to talk to him, to the point that it became almost harassment. Hey, uh, can we just, for a moment, so somebody's not muted, and I wonder actually if it's IT. Well, if we ask Thomas, and he wants to join, then we can I'm guessing it's it's. I don't hear IT, anything. Dude. IT folks. It popped up on here as IT. It's like, <laughs> you didn't follow me on that one. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> what? So for each pigeon five, that's enough for two pigeons. Right. Hey Matt from IT, can you hear us? There, there, I showed it up. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. So, are we back off mute? Yeah, we're we're good. So that that's an important thing to be aware of. In, in when we do medical rounds, so all the doctors and nurses get together and talk about patients. Invariably, the one that they talk about the most isn't the most sick; it's the one with the biggest personality disorder. And it's very similar with police work. So if you find that your team is talking about one person more than others, often the best thing to do is say, "This person has a personality disorder. Let's move on to help somebody that we can help." Um, let me think. So talking more about the impulsivity, one of the things I saw switching just briefly to antisocial personality disorder, there's a, a lot of evidence about violence and antisocial also. Um, and they, there's very good um, ways of uh, diagnosing the, it's called a hair scale. It's, this is a guy who designed a scale to identify people with um, antisocial, and one of them is lack of empathy. People have heard that with uh, antisocial personality disorder. They don't really care about other people, and often they don't even, they can't even put themselves in, they can't feel that emotion of another person. They might be able to cognitively think out what that other person is to, is thinking and feeling but they won't have that sudden like if someone if you're watching a, a sporting event and someone gets hurt your first reaction is to sort of have a twinge of pain those are called mirror neurons everybody has them and you suddenly get them people with antisocial some of them don't really have that they just don't feel what other people feel they don't have that sudden emotional resonance but they can understand what the other person intellectually they can say oh that person's probably in a lot of pain physically they understand it but they don't care 
Um, so that's a lack of empathy. Um, but when you look at all the different criteria for antisocial, one of them is impulsivity. Uh, and one of them is this lack of empathy. And if you look at them closely, it's actually impulsivity, which is more related to violence than lack of empathy. The lack of empathy gives them, the people with antisocial, the ability to manipulate, to, um, it, it can be very useful in business to rise to the top. Studies show that people who are C, CEOs of uh, corporations have a higher rate of antisocial than those who aren't. So it, it, it has its advantages, so to speak, being not having that emotional empathy because it's easier to rise to the top and to manipulate and get what you want. Um, but obviously that's not so great for society. So it's really that impulsivity, which is closely related to violence. And that's true with, you know, people are drive drunk. That's both impulsive and substance abuse. And that's linked to even firearm violence. So someone with schizophrenia who uh, doesn't have a history of violence and doesn't have a history of drunk driving compared to, say, a borderline personality disorder who has a history of drunk driving, that person is probably a lot more dangerous and shouldn't get a gun more so than someone who's been admitted to the hospital against their will because of schizophrenia. Um, but like all mental illnesses that I know of, except for maybe, and uh, no, even antisocial, the, the biggest risk to themselves is suicide. So that's the biggest risk of violence. If we were able to uh, stop all gun violence um, that is directed towards themselves, we'd have a much bigger drop in overall death rates and violence than if we could stop all of violence to other people. And that's true with borderlines. And what makes borderline personalities so difficult is they will cut and they will burn and they will have these cry for help suicide uh, attempts. Um, so, for example, if someone's burning or cutting or they have cuts all the way up and down their arms, that's almost like direct evidence of, of personality disorder. I mean, it's not 100%, but it's, it's getting pretty close. Um, because you can have a personality disorder and other things as well. So that, so if you see or know somebody has a history of cutting or self-mutilation, look out for all those things, all that instability, all those other things. As I was saying, they might say, well, I'm, bored, I'm bipolar, and that's my bipolar acting up. But it's really very different. And the distinction between bipolar and borderline is that borderline's kind of stable over time. They, they might regress and get worse when there's stress, but pretty much they're always that way. They're always unstable. There's all, they're always looking for another thing, and they're always impulsive. Someone with mania can seem exactly like someone with borderline, but you treat them a month later, and they're just a normal person. I mean, I shouldn't say normal, but they're a well-adjusted person. Um, so mania will come in big waves and then taper off, where bipolar is just, I mean, where uh, borderline is always just kind of difficult to deal with. Um, and going back to the suicide, it's very difficult to figure out which is a real suicide attempt and, and which is just this either cry for help or self-mutilation. It can be very difficult for clinicians to tell the difference. It can be very difficult for the patient to tell the difference, whether they truly wanted to die or they were just trying to, you know, the, the extreme version is what I said before. You know, you broke up with me and now it's all your fault and I'm going to kill myself and I have the bottle of, you know, aspirin and I'm going to take three of them. 
or whatever it is, and then you call for help. Um, but the, despite all that, the rate of completed suicide in borderline is high. Uh, some studies show as high as 10% lifetime. That's how they end their life is by suicide. So it gets very, very difficult for clinicians and for everybody is like, okay, they keep doing these sort of cries for help, but eventually there's a very good chance that they're going to kill themselves. But that doesn't mean that we have to admit them to the hospital every time because they're always at a high risk. They're chronically at a high risk for suicide. Um, so I think that's probably enough uh, overview. Does anybody have specific questions or comments or, uh, or anything about the, how it relates to that movie? If you can see the movie, it's good. Um, Colleen with BCSO, um, what's the treatment? You said that they can be treated. Is it talk therapy or are there drugs for it? That's an excellent question. So there are some, the, the first line treatment is talk therapy and it's called dialectical behavioral therapy. It's very sort of directed and, and it's very long-term and it's about, whoops, I'm mute. No, I'm sorry, I was <laughs> muted. We got kicked off and we're, we're trying to join back oh, you're in. On the, you're on the computer. It was, you guys missed the most awesome part of the lecture, sorry. <laughs> um, I don't know why I dropped these. <laughs> so it, there is um, treatment for it. Uh, so yes, talk therapy is the first line treatment. Medicines help most for the all the symptoms that go along with it. So there's a high um, comorbidity with depression, so antidepressants can help. So all the things, anxiety, there's a high comorbidity, anti-anxiety medicines can help. But um, there are some studies that show that medicines specifically for um, borderline can help. Like I saw one about Seroquel, and it can help. It was interesting because at a at a dose of I think one one fifty, it was sort of the ideal dose. That's milligrams, but if you go more, it doesn't. It's actually worse. So um, yes, there are medicines that, and it's mostly antipsychotics are used the most to specifically target uh, borderline personality. But really, it's it used to be called burnout. But people with uh, personality disorders. Eventually, they learn that these things don't work. All these sort of acting up and all this kind of craziness just doesn't work, and they kind of burn out on it. Um, that's one of the theories. But it is a genetic, it has a very large genetic predisposition. So it used to be thought that it's only because of abuse and neglect in childhood, but that increases the risk dramatically, but there's also a, a large genetic component to it. Looks like Nick has a question. Is there another question? Hey, Doc. Nick Onkin, Rear Rancho PD. Um, talk a little bit about how EDT plays into um, treatment. I couldn't hear about how DBT, did you say? Yeah, dialectic behavioral treatment. So dialectic behavioral therapy was de developed by this woman uh, named Marsha Linehan. And she's very, very famous now for coming up with this. And it's, it's sort of a combination, from my understanding, I don't have specific training there. It, it's a sort of a combination between um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very structured, and this is what we're going to do. Behavioral modifications like contracts, and, and if you do this, we're going to react in that way. For example, if you they, they can have a contract, like if you have a, this sort of suicidal outburst, 
that they're not going to rush and send you to the hospital. It's just part of the contract. Um, and those kind of things help. Uh, and then the other part is sort of getting in touch with emotions and learning how to regulate emotions. And that's really, and thoughts too. And that's really borrowed from a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and Eastern philosophy, really, like meditation and sort of grounding yourself in the present moment and not getting overwhelmed and, and letting your thoughts and emotions run away. And it's very, it, it works, but a lot of people don't like it because it, it's very directive. Like, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do this homework, and it's very intense, and it takes a lot of hours out of the day. So higher-functioning people with borderline personality disorder don't like it, generally. That's a good question, though. Yeah. No, yeah, that's, that's the biggest, big emphasis on decreasing self-harming behaviors and... Um, and kind of, you know, we say emotional regulation, you can't control your emotions, but you can control your behavior. So a big, big emphasis on that. Um, and very basic things, learning how to identify your emotions so that then you can come up with a response. It's almost like reparenting. Yeah. You know, one of the, so, you know, little Johnny, what are you feeling now? Use your words, don't hit, that kind of stuff. And there are theories that people with personality disorders are just kind of stunted. So someone with a borderline personality is sort of the easiest way to remember is unstable. And it's like a girl in seventh grade who's sort of like, I love this boy. He means everything to me. And then the next day they hate them. So that's kind of, they're kind of stunted. And what's also interesting is as they're in a less stressful environment, they can maybe go on and act like somebody in high school. But if they're really, really stressed, they can regress and almost act like a two-year-old. Um, so it's really kind of like a reparenting. I think that Dan doing here, one of the most important things to keep in mind when you're interacting with, with folks like this is to try to be as validating as possible. I think of borderline personality disorder as a disorder of invalidation, and that's usually what will set people off. So, you know, when people are, when people try to show us how much pain they're in and how much they're suffering, and they don't get a response that's validating, they, they turn up the volume to try and get the message across. Right. And so now they're yelling. Now they're shouting and crying. Now they're look, I shall show you how much I'm hurting. I'm hurting so much that I'm going to hurt myself. So so and when we're looking for kind of obedience and things like that, we need to do it. You know, we want people to kind of if you're going to be directed with them in a, out in the field and stuff, but you also want to give those validating messages. Right. Man, this is a really hard day. Man, this has been horrible for you. Um, hearing those messages are gonna is gonna help to de-escalate, or at least prevent can prevent further escalation. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that's really valid and very important for you guys. And it, that was sort good, of a, that was good validation. Mm -hmm. that, that yes, because <laughs> I know he's got a terrible personality. No, so <laughs> no, but uh, he does. You don't, you don't. That's the type of thing yeah. that we need to do. We, it's it's that. But it's sort of cutting it off earlier. And yeah. so I, I think that's a great thing. The other thing that freaks people out about borderline personality disorder is uh, they're very good at reading people. So. Like if you kind of look away or maybe you have a, a yawn coming on, they'll call you on it right away. And going back to that validation, the best way to get out of that is sort of, you know, I'm sorry while you really do read people well and, right. um, you know, this is very important to you and, and just go on with it. 
um, because it, some of them, they can almost feel like mind readers and some of them believe that they're mind readers because they're so good at it. And the theory behind that is that, um, you know, they used to be abused. A lot of them used to be abused. So if you're getting abused as a child, some of the coping mechanisms that you develop then you carry on to become a personality disorder. And one of them is if my dad's coming home drunk and he wants to beat me up or have sex with me, I'm very good at reading him. I know when to go run and hide and I know when I'm okay. The other is if you are to the point where you're getting beaten or raped, there's something called dissociation. So you sort of leave your body and it's very well described. And some people who have been raped serially and children are very good at dissociating anyway. So they learn to do it even better to the point where they can feel like they're floating outside of their body watching themselves get raped. And that's a very good defense mechanism when you're a child but it just you can't just turn it off. You're like, okay, now I'm in a safe environment. I'm not going to dissociate anymore. But they do. They will go on these long fugues where they'll just kind of wander away, and um, they may not remember it. Um, and the extreme version of that, which I don't quite believe in, is uh, what used to be called multiple personality disorders or dissociative identity, is that they can go into these dissociative states and take on other personalities. I, that's a whole nother discussion. But that's the extreme version of it. Anything else? Colleen with BCSO. So am I understanding that they tend to be maybe big personalities, very dramatic, yeah. and like to consume all of the attention? Yeah, that, that can definitely, that can happen. Yes, absolutely. They, yeah, drama they, queen? They're, they're sort of drama queens by default because of all their instability. But it's not like histrionic personality disorder where that's the defining characteristic. Okay. That's, that can happen with borderline, but it's not a defining characteristic. It's mostly the case like in the crisis. During okay. the crisis. With, with the borderline personality disorder. Yes. So in the crisis, they're very dramatic. Yes. But outside of, but the outside of that? They might, they might not be outside of that. They okay. might be kind of depressed and sullen, um, right, or just irritable. Okay. Yes. So histrionic is more dramatic all the time? Histrionic is like the actress that yeah. always needs to be the center, center of attention and dresses provocatively and doesn't have deep, meaningful relationships with people. That's more of a histrionic personality disorder. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Is there any questions from the network? I have one. Matt with APD. Doc, can you talk about when, if, like, we've had issues at least in APD where this same woman would follow an officer to the substation and bring him mixtapes and things like that, and then would split or create kind of animosity towards other shifts. Mm -hmm. Is there a way that we can address that as law enforcement, Great or do question. you have tips for that? Great I mean, the, the tip for that is, is trying to get everybody on the same page. So you can write a contract and share it across shifts. Uh, I know you guys have some crossover in one shift ending and the other shift beginning. So I would discuss that. This is the plan. When she comes, take the tape, thank her, and don't spend more than five minutes with her. Um, validate and get her out of there kind of thing. Um, so it's important to get everybody on the same page, literally working from the same script, and sometimes it's worth writing it down. And ideally, having her be part of that contract making so she knows what the rules are. So you catch them when they're in a good space, and you have them sort of write the contract, and then you can very calmly say, you know, 
I understand you're very upset right now, but we did agree to this and we're going to have to stick to that agreement and then move on. And don't date her. You're, 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 and don't date her. Right. <laughs> here, so Matt, you, you raised this, this issue of splitting and I think it's really important to talk about. So splitting behaviors is where somebody is working different team members against other team members. And it's really easy to get wrapped up in that drama, right? They maybe will complain about um, somebody else in the agency that, that didn't take them seriously or mistreated them. And, and it's a really compelling story. And, and we might not, oftentimes we, we catch on to this way too late. And it's like, oh man, well, I'm going to go talk to that person and see, you know, maybe, or, or talk to their supervisor, you know, or, or and kind of see maybe, maybe is, is, you know, things didn't go so well and, and let's, let's get quality improvement. And then we do that and maybe that happened and maybe it didn't happen. And now we're starting problem. Now we're fighting because the person kind of got us created drama. Um, and, and people don't necessarily do this even knowing like with the intent to cause drama and stir things up. And sometimes they do have that intent, but sometimes they're just, they're, they're trying to problem solve and this is their immature way of problem solving. And so that's why communication amongst ourselves about these folks is so important, just like the, the point was made. And I do just want to point out, like, we tend to think of females uh, in this role, and we use, we use kind of her and, and she, and, and we use this a lot, but, but it's actually equally, um, it's found in men and in males and females equally. It's, it's equal prevalence. Um, and I think it's just important to keep that in mind uh, so that, and I point that out because well, we're at risk of missing it in men and then misreading them. Um, yeah, men are usually thought of as, as antisocial and women are thought of as borderline. But And there's a lot of crossover between them, but I agree with Dan, Dr. Duhick, is that, yeah, it's overlooked. Matt Tanith, APD. If you guys are into football, there's Brandon Marshall. He's an NFL player. He's come out with saying he has borderline personality disorder. He does talks on that. Hmm. And then uh, the the woman that he had, uh, Niels had spoken about before with APD, when it comes to splitting, she would call Javier Lopez and would say, Javi, you know, I called two for two cops to get a response. It took them an hour, but thank you so much for picking up the phone. I just wanted to say my neighbors are parking on the street. Can, can you just start a, a welfare check? And then Javi would do that. And then she'd be like, you are like the greatest officer. Thank you so much for doing this. You know, this other officer in the day shift, they just, they blew me off. But you, you know, you're going above and beyond. And it sucked Javi into it in the beginning. Because, you know, you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm doing a good job. This person, finally, someone respects me. <laughs> and so it's, he got sucked into it. And then it was, she was the only case we talked about. And that's when it became aware.